John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 500.AM0812, certificate number 14946, freight hopping. Now... I know that there's kind of a, especially within the futureling community that lives somewhere in time, uh, a sense that sometimes uh, we have episodes where I have a lot of personal connection to the topic, and a lot of my anecdotes make their way into the episode. You're a tail spinner. I'm a little bit of a tail spinner. You got some yarns. I've always got some uh, personal connection to things where it turns out I ended up, uh, I was there or lived in the aftermath of it. Or, right. Like I'm doing a show on the fourth crusade right. and you're like, like, well, I did some shows at the fourth crusade. Really? Uh, yeah. You might not realize this, but I have, uh, the mantle of the Knights of Templar here in the basement <laughs> of my house somewhere. But in this instance, the freight hopping topic, I have a lot of personal experience, a strange amount of it, uh, given that we're recording this show in the 21st century it's not the golden age of hobos. No, it's not. But I did a not inconsiderable amount of freight hopping in my youth, which was during a period I think you we would call the very end of the era of freight hopping. Now, people still do it. It's still... Is that right? Yeah. It's like a, if, I, if I look in a boxcar sometime, I might see a, a, an old guy playing a harmonica? Well, what you'll find is that the nature of freight transportation has changed and that changed the nature of freight hopping. And sure. So, if there's different freight, you got to hop it differently. That's right. And you'll, you would be hard pressed, I think now, at least in, in our region of the Northwest to ever see a boxcar, let alone an empty boxcar with its door open. Most freight has been containerized and, uh, true. It's always a tank of something or a refrigerated something or a big, just a big shipping container that's been plopped onto a uh, what do you, whatever Onto you call fl- those platform cars, flatbed flat car yeah. or, a, or a platform car. So uh, what do you do? Well, so now freight hopping is much more dangerous actually, and much more of a, um, it's less a means of transportation for migrant workers and much more a means of transportation for, I think there, there's a gutter punk community that still kind of travels up and down the coasts mm-hmm. or through different States via freight. Uh, but it, traditionally, freight hopping was a viable means of crossing the country or or of um, pursuing work in various places. So freight hoppers were going somewhere. In the early days, so freight hopping became a more common lifestyle after the American Civil War. There was uh, the yeah, railroads. Before, had, before there were trains, very hard, very hard to ride the rails. Much harder, but you know. The, <laughs> you had to have one of those cars where you crank the thing up and down. You know, they didn't have those before there were trains either. Have you ever thought of just getting one of those? Like getting rid of your car and getting one of those train cars that goes. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with that is you uh, you have to be always vigilant that there's not a train coming. That's right? true. I mean, you don't want to be caught by an Acela 
like commuter train while you're out on some line somewhere going creak, 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 creak. You don't creak. think you're in good enough shape to outrun a, a, an Amtrak uh, commuter train? Definitely not. Definitely not. Also, I, also I, you can only go places where the track goes. Like if you want to go to Albertsons, you're like, well, there's lots of room on my little, what are they called? Well, I don't know what to call these things. The seesaw. Hand cars? Hand cars? I don't know. Sure. Let's call them that. There's, I've actually seen one in operation years and years and years ago. There's but. plenty of room on here for grocery bags. But the problem is, is there a railway line by Albertsons? Maybe not. Probably there is. You just don't know it's there. It's been decommissioned and turned into a, it's bike, a bike trail. Bike path. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's an empty bike path now. But the the American West was an ideal environment for freight hopping. You had all these Civil War veterans that were kind of like lost and looking for adventure. The West was opening up. Railroads were going across the country. It seemed only natural to hop on a train and see where it took you. That's very interesting because I don't. I think of like the Depression as inventing freight hopping. And, um, you know, in the old West, everyone was in a fancy passenger car waiting to pull into Dodge city or tombstone. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about a passenger car on a train. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. When I'm, th- when I think of people on trains, I don't think of 19th century people hopping freight. It was, a, they did. it was a way to, I mean, because to travel long distance across the United States in a fancy rail car was extremely expensive. Sure. I mean, imagine that must be like, uh, inflation wise, m- maybe more than a plane ticket today. Sure. You're paying for weeks of travel, maybe. And if you're a migrant worker of some kind or an agricultural laborer or a miner and you're back east and you hear stories of all the great wealth to be found in Montana or the ranching earth uh, so jobs. Earth so black that uh, whatever. Yeah, right. You could turn it with a hoe and right, black diamonds, black gold, Texas tea. <laughs> An avocado tree would grow while you were looking at it or something. So freight hopping was, is as old as railroad travel and had. It's got to be a little younger. It's got to be a few hours younger. Sure. I guess probably the first few trains. the very first train had some like very brave guy hopping on. <laughs> well, I mean, anybody that got on that train, I, I mean, it's not necessary that they hop. They do, might. Do you not have to hop? They might have just stepped onto the train, freight steppers. I want to talk about the, here comes the freight stepper. Snore. I want to talk about the actual hopping process at some point. Because it's very worrying to me when I see people in movies get on and off moving trains. I don't think it's safe. No, you're right. It isn't. Um, In the early days of riding boxcars, the cars themselves were constructed in such a way that they had long metal rods that supported the floor of the boxcar. Where are they? They're 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 underneath. Oh, I see. They're by the wheels. Yeah. And if a boxcar is closed, obviously, you're kind of out of luck in, in terms of getting in there and nustling up in a big bale of hay and having a... Uh, you know, and that's what you are getting your little cook pot going and everything. But underneath the boxcars, there were these long rods, two or four rods that ran the length of the car. And a euphemism for riding the rails is the term riding the rods, which dates back to this early construction of rail cars. And hobos would actually climb underneath the car. Sometimes they'd have a a little platform of, a, you know, they'd get a piece of wood and put it between the rods and and lay across the wood. Other times they would just grab onto the rod and hold on. You just have to dangle? It's like flagpole sitting? Yes. And it was terribly dangerous, awful. But that was a method of riding the rails in early times. Today we call that just flying economy, basically. <laughs> yeah, there's no upgrades from there. <laughs> you bought the cheapest ticket. You're in boarding group Z. But what you're looking for is an unlocked car or an open car of some kind? Well, so there are a lot of different kinds of freight cars. And fewer now that containerization has become so specialized. I mean, now if you're looking to move almost any kind of freight, if you're a company that's making widgets or woojits or you have... Yeah, if you've just gotten into widgets, If you're disrupting disrupting widgets, (laughs) (laughs) Or if you're... uh, The way freight works now is you buy a container or portion of a container And you can fill it with whatever, but the container remains a kind of unit, right? It it makes more sense. Otherwise, you're moving stuff from the train onto the ship, then from the ship into a different train. I mean... Which was true until really not that long ago. Freight... And then somebody, some guy was playing Tetris and he was like, what if everything was just a big cube? What if it all went into a cube before it even got here? What if it's always a cube, man? So if you if you think about on the waterfront, for instance, I mean, the way freight was being moved then yeah, was... Yeah, there's all these jobs. Wood, 
wood crates and barrels and, and... And bohunk guys. Who had to unload the car, put the boxes into a net, lift the net up into the hold of the ship, stack those boxes on the other end of it. The net maybe falls and hits some Italian guy. Uh, but So uh, many Italian guys. So many jobs lost, right? To, to containerization. So many jobs lost, but also the cost of moving freight became so greatly reduced that now it's in most cases in the United States cheaper to have something made in China and shipped to wherever little town you live, all shipped all the way across the ocean than it is to just make that thing in your own town. So the entire American working class lost their jobs, but in return, your town got a Dollar Tree. Yeah, but in, in return, like this thing that you probably could have made yourself was made by material that was shipped to China then manufactured and then shipped back to you. It, it it did, I mean, it. we lost a lot of jobs, but the oil companies continued to make money. <laughs> Seems like that's how, it's, that's how it usually works. What a coincidence. Yeah, isn't that, that weird? So many public policy decisions are made uh, that happen to benefit the big uh, fossil fuel companies. But if you think about a train, the way trains get made up, I mean, you have coal trains, which... Uh, I'm coal, with you. Coal cars are hopper cars. You pour stuff in the top and then at the bottom. And they're, they're just open air, right? A lot of them are open air, although the coal trains create a tremendous amount of pollution in the form of coal dust. Yeah, I've seen signs along the train tracks here in different commu Northwest communities that don't want the coal trains coming through. And coal trains consolidate here uh, because they're being shipped out again to Asia. So we get a lot of coal trains through here. But if you see coal, there are videos, you can look at them online, videos of coal trains that are traveling at speed through the Midwest or Wyoming, and they are leaving behind them a cloud just of spewing? just black coal dust. It's not smoke. It's like just coal particles being blown out of the tops of these cars. Let me ask you this. Has anybody thought of a tarp? That is a, a good solution, but you know, tarps are expensive. They're, they <laughs> tarps, don't make tarps don't make themselves. They don't just give them away. So hopper cars also can hold grain, and grain also, you know, will shed a bunch of sort of uh, husk I'm as it's traveling. You, get a tarp. Tarps. A lot of them are covered. Grain cars often are, have have actual covers that keep the grain from getting wet or whatever. Coal is uh, maybe more resilient. Than corn. Also, people don't die of wheat lung. Right. Or maybe they do. I don't know. Uh, hopper cars also carry all kinds of, I mean, you can you can picture what would go in a hopper car. Sand. Uh, super balls? Super balls. That's whole how, hopper car. That's how, how super they, balls get to your town. <laughs> well, and a lot of towns in the West are protesting super ball trains. Well, sure, because one crash and yeah. they just go everywhere. Well, and they, Like six hours later, they're still bouncing. You've, you can see it on YouTube, these videos of trains with super balls just going in every direction. And nobody wants to fix it because it's so hilarious. Yeah, that's right. There's not a problem that anybody <laughs> wants. So if you're a hobo, can, or sorry, is that offensive? If you're some kind of a freight hopping itinerant, would you hop into a coal car or a wheat car? Uh, so am I making bread with wheat that's like touched hobo flesh? N you would not generally hop into the hopper because despite its name, once you get into the hopper, it's very hard to get out. Uh, if it's an empty hopper, you get in there and you can't get out. So if when you're a, hopping in, you got to be already thinking about the hop out. That's exactly right. And if you're hopping into a grain car to sit and ride on top of the grain, you're putting an extra onus on yourself. So freight hopping, depending on jurisdictions and depending on parts of the country, it was regarded as either kind of a benign nuisance or in other places as a serious crime. And right, you got to watch out for the bulls, yeah, right? Yeah, that's All right. All those railway yard cops that are that have the billy clubs. Billy clubs. And, and railroads employed cops called bulls to specifically to keep hobos off their trains. They kind of wanted to, what are they worried about? It becomes an epidemic where their train is just more hobo than train? Well, no, I mean, it's... Or liability if people get There's their liability, but also in the old days, um, hobos are not hobos because they are good, honest citizens who are going to church every Sunday. You know, they're itinerant. Are you hobo shaming? Well, so l let me let me talk about the term hobo. There are three terms of art for this culture. Um, there's hobo, and a hobo is really a term for a migrant 
worker. Yeah, he wants a job. Hobo's looking for a job everywhere he goes. And the reason he's traveling from place to place is that the work has dried up where he was. And he has a sense that there's work somewhere else that he's headed toward. But it's, that seems like it must be illusory. Unless you're picking crops, work does not move around that much. Mm. Like if you want to go split firewood for somebody. What I'm saying is adventure must drive a lot of these people, even if they say, I'm looking for work. Really what they want to do is be crisscrossing America, chopping firewood, no? I think a lot of it is that work, uh, agricultural work, and then other forms of work used to be very seasonal. Seasonal so, so work. So these guys were picking fruit in orchards. They'd so. end up picking. And this was before there was a large body of labor in the United States from Mexico mm-hmm. or from other places where, I mean, now one of the big complaints, I think, in the immigration debate is that although certain segment of the American population doesn't want immigration, there's also a whole bunch of jobs that those self-same Americans yeah. and their children don't want to perform. We are profit, you know... The powers that be are profiting by having a large uh, manual labor pool. But in past Americas, that wasn't true. And fruit needed to be picked. And Right. And, like, where, how are you going to get thousands of workers here this month to your orchard that you don't support the rest of the year? Well, how does that system work? And it was. It's and trains. Hoboism was a major feature. and But that's also true of. Ho- uh, it's an ism? I didn't even know. It's an ism. Are, you, are you a hoboist? Uh, I, I am a uh, I have some hoboist. Hobo- I have some hoboistic leaning. You're hoboist. You're like a French. <laughs> yeah. You're a hoboist who drinks a very good espresso. I'm a snob hobo. Uh, but then there, there's a, I think within this community, what would be considered a lesser class, which is the tramp. And a tramp is someone who is traveling, not necessarily looking for work, but will work when, when they have so to. So this is the guy I was describing who just wants to cross America and will support himself, however. Yeah, he works when, when he's down on his his last buck, right? He shows up and the tramp is the type of person that shows up at the back door of your restaurant and offers to wash some dishes for food. A tramp is someone who is doing menial, unskilled labor. He doesn't have a relation. I think a, a hobo often would have relationships with foremen across the country. And when he arrived in August, they would recognize him and they'd be happy to see him. Is he wearing like hobo clown makeup when he shows up at the, no, at the those plant are, or I think you're thinking of tramps. Oh, those are tramps. Yeah. Hobos are, you know, they have dungarees on and they have uh, little uh, like jaunty caps off to the side. Oh, really? Do you remember, um, just like maybe as much as a decade ago, uh, some um, hipsters were going to have a hobo themed wedding? Oh. Do you remember this? No. So it was, you know, dressed like a hobo wedding. And and I guess what they mean is tramps. Apparently they got their... A brain hopper class system wrong. Somewhere between hobo and tramp, yeah. But it was, you know, have a comical five o'clock shadow and a bindle and rags and patches. And they just got roasted on the internet for kind of glamorizing poverty in Uh kind of a dilettantish way. And I guess I would have thought they were covered by some kind of 50-year rule where, you know, if you're glamorizing Depression-era poverty, you know, that's a little different (laughs) than... um, you know, people crossing the Mediterranean on rafts today. Futurelings will not be able to comprehend how sensitive people were in our time and anxious that they were doing something wrong. I think a hobo-themed wedding is clearly like trying to do like a Disney princess-themed wedding. Yes. I mean, uh, it's awful on many axes, but I would not have thought that um, insufficient wokeness was one of them. Yeah. I The, the third level of the lowest basis the, level. The of, lowest of basis the level of ladder. This, this culture was the bum, and bum is a word that we probably grew up using to refer to any panhandler or anybody that you saw. I think dads refer uh, use bum to refer to the athletes on the other team. Yeah, that guy's a bum. He's a bum. That's a foul ref. But a bum is someone who doesn't really want to travel or work. <laughs> well, he's, uh, in, he's in the wrong line of business then. But why, is he, up, why is he on the train? How up, is he on the train? Because, because bums end up getting chased out of places. Oh, he got ridden out of somewhere on a rail. That's right. And then there's a lot of hobo culture that is oriented toward making the world safe for other hobos. Uh, our friend John Hodgman has a in his um, in his book Areas of My Expertise. Mm-hmm. He goes into a very comical explication of hobo signs. He and, names thousands of fictional yeah. hobos, and he's hilarious at fictionalizing 
you know, facts. I think it's problematic for hobo wedding on hobo wedding grounds. We pro- have, let's go get that guy. Well, a lot of hipsters now think that there are all these hobo signs that don't really exist, but there, but hobo, <laughs> hobo signs were a way that hobos communicated to one another. And it was part of a culture of an expectation that hobos do, if, if hobos burn bridges in certain places, they are burning that bridge for other hobos. So it's easy if you are itinerant to go to a place and say, well, I'm going to steal this lady's pie off of her windowsill because that's the number one hobo crime. I'm going to steal some chickens. That's the number two crime. And I'm never going to be here again because I'm going to hop on a train and get out of here. But within hobo culture, that is a crime against all hobos. Because you'll the, never get a piece of pie again. Well, yeah. The next guy comes along and he's like, hey, hello, may I have a piece of pie? And the woman's like, you hobos are all the same. There should be a registration system where you have to show your card with your level, you know, and it's got a little right. Ticketmaster hologram thing with a bindle on it. Ah, certified hobo. Come in, good sir. And then you can leave the kindly lady who made scones <laughs> mark on her on her picket fence. Well, and, and this is true even in our own time. Uh, attitudes toward the poor and, and migrant workers and uh, homeless people vary greatly from place to place. So if you come along and meet a kindly old woman who brings you in and lets you sleep in her hayloft, it isn't necessarily- Is that a euphemism? For lets anything? her sleep in her hayloft. No, that uh, people used had, to have hayloft. Yeah, I know, but then now they, now they, uh, Brazil walk. You are always trying to pornify every single like three word turn of phrase. Hey, let's get in the car. Oh, is that a euphemism? Oh, in for, the car. Uh, I see what you mean. Is she going to get in your car? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout uh so there was there was a pretty sophisticated unwritten code of hobo culture and that that eventually became kind of a written or widely known code. Like um, do you think it ever was written? Like did people have a copy of the hobo bible or whatever? There was so there was a group of hobos that met in 1889 at a national hobo convention. And again, this is way before the depression, right? 1889. There was already an organized sense of a hobo world. And conventions. And a convention in St. Louis. What were they, you can't cosplay as hobos there. They must have dressed up as uh, something else. Well, I think they probably were dressed as nicely as they could, right? Because they're- Putting a good face on. Yeah, and they're arriving in a town during an era when everyone was wearing a jacket and tie. So you can't just, it's not like now where the richest guy in the company dresses- like he's right. Hobo, you know, hobos then dressed like bankers now. They probably. did, yeah. Uh, but here are some of the um, here are some of the codes voted upon as a concrete set of laws by the nationwide hobo body. Uh, rule number one: Decide your own life. Don't let another person run or rule you. Whoa! These are not just like practical tips. These are going to be like uh, uh, you know. This is the secret. This is an ethical hobos. code. That's right. Two, and this is kind of a long list, so we don't have to read them all, but two. Here's some highlights. When in town, always respect the local law and officials and try to be a gentleman at all times. Mm-hmm. Or lady. Uh, well, so there were uh, yeah, there were women hopping the rails, but it was, I think, understandably, a much smaller group of people. Right. If it's a labor force back then, labor force was male. Three, don't take advantage of someone who is in a vulnerable situation Locals or other hobos. Golden rule. 
Four, always try to find work, even if temporary, and always seek out jobs nobody else wants. By doing so, you not only help a business along, but ensure employment should re you return to that town again. They're just making it explicit. Like, we are the, the menial labor force of the country, and we move around because it's efficient. Yeah, and they are trying to, trying to establish that they are members of society. Right, yeah. that they are maybe an underclass, but that they provide a valuable service. And it's difficult because they're not members of the community. So they have to be recognized as important nonetheless. And it's funny how much this resonates today when we still need this kind of labor class and they still have trouble getting these kind of you know, this kind of dignity. And they continue on to say, like, when you're riding the train, consider yourself a member of the crew. So if the railroad needs any help, don't alienate the railroad. I know. do that when I fly. I consider myself a flight attendant. <laughs> you do. You stand up and say, now let me check everyone's... Does uh, anyone have a peanut allergy before the snacks are handed out? Uh, this is 1889. So uh, the third rule, or I'm sorry, the 13th rule is do not allow other hobos to molest children and expose all molesters to authorities. They are the worst garbage to infest any society. Now, by molest, do they mean that in some 19th century uh, kind of annoy in any way? Yes. Or, or are they literally talking about hobo pedophiles? No, the, well, the word molest had much more general connotations. Mm -hmm. But for this to be an admonition directed at all hobos, I mean, they're not just saying don't bother kids. It's clear that hobos are regarded by polite society as the font of men who will come and... Well, but if you have to put a rule in your book that says, oh, and also don't be a child molester, maybe, maybe there is a problem in your organization, you know? Like, maybe it's not just perception. Yeah, agreed. And, and people, again, that are driven to the rails often are like people joining the French Foreign Legion, uh, people that maybe are escaping problems elsewhere. Also, there were a lot more, I mean, children were a lot more unsupervised and runaway children were a major component of the hobo world. Uh, there were a lot of kids riding the rails because if you were an orphan or things didn't work out in your little neck of the woods, kids could also just as easily run out and jump on a train. Uh, the 14th rule of the hobo Congress is help all runaway children and try to induce them to return home. So it's, they know it's not good for business to have all these kids run right in the rails anyway. Right. And good for business is exactly what that generation of hobos, how they thought of their culture and, and how they tried to promulgate it. Uh, by 1909, there was a study done that estimated there were between five and 700,000 tramps riding the rails in the United States. Wow. This is before World War I. Almost a million at a time when the population of the country was... This was, yeah, 2% 2, 2 of the population. So riding the rails was always an American thing. It was very much an element of the West in particular. Although hobos, of course, traveled to all 50 states. It was a way to get to California. That's where a lot of the jobs were, if a lot of them were agricultural. Right. And in fact, the, the name hobo, it's suggested, is a Northwest coinage. No one can quite... Uh, locate the etymology of it. Uh, there's some suggestion that it's short for um, homeward bound or that it oh, is derived from ho boy or I know you like you like French stuff. It could be ho bo b-e-a-u. Like beau geste. Like beau geste. Uh, so, but it appeared first in the West and in the Northwest and then became, hobo became a word synonymous with traveling worker in California first. Am I wrong that there's the Northwest today seems like where freight hopping culture has survived the most? Yeah. I only get this idea from like the movies, I guess. It is a kind of West Coast punk rock thing. If you're imagining a freight train slowing down to go through a town and like a girl with a backpack hopping out, like I picture that happening in Oregon more than anywhere else in America. But in the Southern United States, there are still, there are a lot of railroads that kind of just putter along and people I think hop freights down there much more casually as a way of just going from town to town. It's like hitching like, a ride. Yeah, just grab a train and ride because the train's never going to go over 20 miles an hour. Just ride it, you know, uh, four miles down the road. How, so how fast can a train be going before it's not safe to hop on and off? Well, so 
the reason that you would ever hop onto a train that was moving is traditionally the railroad bulls were situated either in yards or in turnouts where trains would come to a stop. They would hide and wait. But once the train's moving... The bull can't really do anything about it. And so hobos would hide in the bushes in an area where they knew trains had to slow down because there are speed limits throughout, you know, the rail network. Uh, Just based on the the curve and the track and the safety of taking a train. Yeah, based on a lot of things. I mean, if if there's been some erosion in that area and the track feels a little unstable, they'll put a speed limit on it uh, in towns and so forth. So you would hide and wait for a train that came by that was going slow enough that you could run up alongside, throw your bag in and hop on. In almost every case, getting on or off a moving train is extremely dangerous. And I think every hobo would prefer to get on a stopped, um, motionless train. In my own history of riding trains, I was extremely conscious of not getting my legs chopped off. And because so, that's what can happen, right? Yeah. You get or under the wheel. Cut in half, right? Yeah. And so I set for myself a rule that I would never get on or off a train that was moving at all. And I was able to, for the most part, travel all across the country just waiting until a train came to a stop. You're the cautious hobo. I was. I was I, very cautious. I, I, I think I've heard that folk song. The cautious the hobo. Cautious hobo. <laughs> He's, he was one of the great American characters. <laughs> I also I also made it a policy never to get on a train when I when I was drunk, never to get on it, and I, I ended up over the years violating all of these rules. And one of the reasons I stopped riding trains, not just that I decided I wanted to take more regular baths, but I violated my own code enough that I realized I had become unsafe. And I, w- I didn't, that's not how I wanted to die. I assume there's also safety issues with other itinerants. I mean, are you worried about a, a guy with a knife? So the first train I hopped was in 1986 and there still were boxcars during that period. It was before containerization had completely changed the nature of freight transport. Yeah. And there were still old hobos left over from an earlier time. And the first few trains I hopped, I was super excited to be kind of uh, pioneering this old-fashioned thing. I thought that the hobos were all gone and I was, I had discovered a whole You're gonna bring it back. forgotten world, right? Uh, and it's an amazing experience to jump on an open train and have that train get up to speed and go across the country. Paint the picture. Like what, uh, is it just the knowledge of? Uh... Well, no, I mean, there's so many things things about it that are incomparable. On the one hand, the railroad tracks go where the roads don't. Mm-hmm. So we were accustomed to seeing the train over there from our car, but then the train peels off and goes. And in uh, a lot of Western states, like in, in Northern Montana, there's long, long stretches where the train is just by itself out there in the open country no roads or anything as far as the eye can see. Sense of solitude. You also get, standing in a boxcar looking out at the world, you get a panoramic view of the world, unlike one that you would get from a car. Much more akin to being on a motorcycle, where there's there aren't any, there's no frame around yeah. your vision of the world as it passes. Also, rail... Rail lines tend to go through abandoned towns and next to old mines. And there's a lot of the American West that was built around railroads that after the rise of air travel and the interstate highway, those places are kind of left in situ. There's fewer no roads to them even. Right. the only way to see them. So the train takes you places where you think, this is the most incredible thing I ever saw. Like I, I, I went past one time a a used tire dump that stretched as far as the eye could see in every direction so that I was in an environment of hills and valleys, all just tires. That's pretty much my dream. And there was there were some areas where they were on fire, where the tires had caught fire either by lightning or spontaneous combustion. And so there was like smoke coming out of places. And it was the most dystopian place I've ever seen. I've never seen a photograph of it even, but I was in this environment, couldn't believe it. This is not your example of the most beautiful thing you ever saw. But also the air 
you know, you're getting just like the wind in your hair. The most beautiful thing I ever saw, I woke up on a boxcar crossing the Rocky Mountains and the train had slowed way down. We were, we were just inching around this sort of, you know, kind of looking down into a valley. It was late at, you know, late at night, early in the morning, the moon was out and I looked down into this valley, a little village with the lights all sparkling and there was kind of mist and fog in the air. And it felt like I was on a train set. It was an image that, and I woke up out of a, out of a sleep. So I was kind of in a dream state anyway. It's still in my mind as maybe the most beautiful sort of Christmas vignette. It's a, a diorama etched into the, the front of little, my brain. A little miniature. Yeah. How much of this is ever colored or even ruined by fear? Well, so like, I kind of, I kind of wonder if I would be too nervous to enjoy the ride. A lot of fear. And what, ha and what happened to me was I discovered as I got into the middle West that there were other hobos and that they were older and sketchier men than I had ever met before. And the first time I got on a train and there was someone Were you just like, Hey friend, I was, I was like, tell me tales of the, of the open road. Wow. Hello, Mr. Hobo. And Mr. Hobo was 65 years old and, you know, had knuckles that looked like, uh, tinker toys. And he was like, hello, young Dewey boy, <laughs> your super blonde mustache is, seems to just be coming in. Let me show you the ways of the world. <laughs> like his knuckles say likes and kids. <laughs> And it was not, and then I'm stuck on a train with him, the two of us, like on a car together for hours and hours and hours because this train's going too fast to do anything. Like, you know how close this is to my nightmare of being on an airplane where the person next to me won't stop talking. Well, but and, I rarely think they're going to knife me. And this happened more than once, uh, a situation where I felt in trouble. Now I'm here trapped in an, in an environment and, and this person feels predatory. I had the advantage, of course, of although I was only 17, I was six foot three and 250 pounds. So in many of those situations that where I had gotten in over my head, I presented just enough of a formidable potential adversary that no one ever actually pounced. So your number one hobo rule is actually be large. Just be large and be dumb. strapping. I was large and dumb. And I... I didn't perceive my danger as, as, I did not perceive as much danger as I was in. Yeah. I wonder if now in hindsight, you're like, whoa. I woke up a couple of times in my thirties in a cold sweat, realizing like, oh my, what was I? Oh my God. I was two seconds away from being, you know, like jumped by a gang of old men basically. But my confidence, my dumb confidence of just like, hey, fellows, you know, well, <laughs> I've got a can of beans that I can add to your stone soup. <laughs> and they were like, wow. And, you know, I think I, I think I presented maybe as a cop or just as <laughs> trouble. You know, I just Hello, looked like. Hello, fellow itinerants. <laughs> yeah, I looked like somebody that, if, uh, that was maybe too good to be true. I was such. Um, You're a unicorn. I was such white meat, you know, that they were like, this can't, this has got to be a dream. So yeah, I was. <laughs> they thought you were just a hallucination. They're like, oh, it's this again, the beautiful blonde boy who appears. Why must nature curse me? You're like, no, really. Let's have some chili. And I was a very, uh, although I looked and acted very big and confident, I was completely uh, sort of passive person. If one of these hobos had jumped on me and I don't know what I would have done. I, I, can't, I, I cannot put myself back in my 17-year-old mindset to know how how much I would have fought. So you somehow avoided any kind of violent situation? Did you, you never had to get in a fight? Never had to get in a fight. I got, I was grabbed by some bulls a couple of different times and I was grabbed by a bull in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. I was grabbed by a bull in, not Missoula. It was in, um, why am I suddenly spacing? It was. Somewhere in Montana. It was, yeah, Butte. in Montana. It wasn't in Butte. Billings, Helena. It was in Billings. Thank you. God, why did I have such a hard time remembering Billings? I grabbed, got grabbed by a bull in Billings, and both times the bull said to the effect, what the hell are you doing? You're, you're a child, and this is a, you're playing a dangerous game here. You do not want to be with these people. Because the bull was pulling a bunch of people out of a jungle, which just, is kind of a hobo encampment. Right. 
Was he roughing other people up who yes. were not who were not you? Yes. And so he had a line of six or seven guys in their fifties and sixties all sitting on a railroad tie in handcuffs. And he pulled me off, took the handcuffs off me and said, run, run <laughs> away from this life and don't come back. And I was like, Hey, Hey, I'm a hobo too. And he was like, you are not a hobo. <laughs> do you have survive? Maybe you have some survivor bias. Like, you know, like I, I can't do a podcast with the 10 other guys in your situation who actually got their heads sawn off by, uh, by old red. Right. Um, I do. I mean, I have, I, I escaped an awful lot of what should have been my inglorious end. So we should be clear, we're not recommending freight hopping to the future jellyfish. Well, times changed even while I was doing it. Uh, this containerization thing was happening even during this late 80s, early 90s period. For instance, you asked about hopper cars and whether you would ride in them right. with coal or whatnot. You didn't, but at each end of a hopper car, because a hopper car is shaped like a W or like a wide V, each end there was a little platform that was actually kind of covered and protected from the rain. And a lot of those platforms had like a metal shear wall that had a, had a circle cut into it that was the size of a man. And you could sit on those platforms, you could lay your sleeping bag out, you could actually crawl into the hole where you would be not visible to the outside world and there was a little compartment there. It's perfect. It was a great place to ride. Uh, on a grain car, now on a coal car, if you'd get on the side of a coal hopper, the coal dust would turn you completely black. So it was never, it was never great to ride on a coal car. That was not your preferred place at all. You'd become like a very offensive Looney Tunes cartoon. But this was also a time when there were cabooses cabise? on train. Cabise. Cabise. And you, and cabooses had, had brakemen stationed in the caboose in a lot of cases in the early, uh, when I first started riding. But wouldn't they, that weren't their jobs among other things to keep. Yes. So you Hobos wouldn't, out of the although sometimes, I mean, I was invited into a caboose one time. Just a guy and, who wanted to chat. Yeah. Just a guy who was like, I, hobos don't seem. And the thing is, again, I have this bias of being invited into the caboose from his perspective. He's like, look at this kid. His mustache is so blonde. Hey kid, get in here. You know, and I'm thinking, oh, they're nice to all hobos. <laughs> uh, it's the, Instead, it's the other, um, the other famous character, of the American West, the creepy brakeman. <laughs> You know, you know the Which ballad is of also the, a December song. You know the ballad of the cautious hobo and the creepy brakeman, right? <laughs> Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So I remember noticing 10 years ago that cabooses didn't exist anymore and yeah. just being heartbroken. Yes, that my kids would never see a caboose. You, you needed them, right? Well, for a while, you needed them to I break? I mean, the brakeman was watching the length of the train from behind and radioing to the engineer that everything was and kosher. And would he ever, would he ever, uh, uh, you know, uh, rat on hobos? Oh, for sure. But I mean, once a train is in motion, they're not going to stop it to pull hobos off. They but won't he, walk along the top of it like in a Bond movie? With a, with a billy club? <laughs> right. At a certain point, right, the idea of violence in American culture started to change too. I mean, in, in 1890, uh, when the hobo code was first put into effect, I'm sure that if they found you on a moving train, they would just throw you off a bridge and no one, <laughs> no one would weep for you. Well, I was just thinking about how at that time, every job was super dangerous. Yeah. So hobo might've been the safest job, you know, 
Because if you work in a factory, you're just going to, you know, have molten steel poured on you sometime in the first six months. Right. You get your hands chopped off. Because it was a brutal world. But by the 1980s, an employee of Burlington Northern Railroad was not empowered to throw you off of moving train. I mean, there were restrictions on how bad, badly you could treat anyone. Well, plus, yeah, how, does he want to? I'm sure he maybe he's got a he's got a union behind him saying he does not have to get in any hobo fights. Right. He just wants to sit with his coffee. But you know, a brakeman sitting in the back of a caboose. This was before rail yards and switches were all automated. Oh, he was doing switching. So stuff? he was jumping out and and changing switches and and um, you know he had a lot of work to do. And as all of that became automated, now. I don't know if there's a single switch in America that someone can't move with a push of a button at a, you know, a yard house somewhere or on a sitting in a room like in Silver Streak with a giant map of the country with all the different right, all the switches. switches and lights. Millennials killed cabooses. But the other cars that one can ride on are all the railroads over time have made it much more difficult to ride on those cars. So for instance, the hopper cars with the end platforms, Mm -hmm. railroads came along and just took those platforms away so that if you get on a hopper car now, it's just open to the tracks on either end. There's not any more like a safe place. Hobo tries to lie down there and he will just fall and die because there's nothing there. Box cars are no longer really the major form of a train. They, um, there you'll still see them but they're fairly rare. And if you want to ride in a container, you'd have to arrange for all the hobos to be packed into it in China. Yeah, you'd have to sell. First. You'd have to buy the entire container. And fill it with hobos. Containers are all sealed and sealed with actual like lead seals so that in order to get into one, you would have to break the seal. You'd have to break a lock, at which point you would be guilty of breaking and entering. Was the Did the law not consider... Uh, Entering a boxcar, breaking and entering, I guess. Well, again, it it's would be a different law. Yeah, vary by, de- vary by jurisdiction. But if you could find a train that had boxcars that were full of stuff, generally you could also find a boxcar that was empty. Um, because part of moving trains around is you've got these cars you need here and you need them there. So trains are always shuttling a combination of kind of empty and full cars. So where do you ride if all these rides are getting worse? Well, you don't. Uh, more and more, I mean, the, the railroads have made it impossible to really effectively jump a train. And so when you're, when you're talking about Northwest hobo, Northwest punk rock hobos or whatever, they are riding in very unsafe conditions. What you think when you're standing on the side of, of a train, kind of watching it slowly clack, clack through a yard. It seems slow is, oh, I'll just hop up on that ladder right there. I'll climb the ladder to somewhere and I'll be fine. But what happens to people is they'll hop on that ladder, they'll climb up and realize it goes nowhere. The ladder just goes up to the top and... Is that that, uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe like tricking you with a fake ladder? Well, no, the ladder is there for them, for the railroad people to go up and do what they need to do, but it's not... The top of a car is not a very safe or a comfortable place to ride. And so you see kids get up and grab onto one of those ladders and then they're just hanging on. And those are bad ladders. And the train's now going 50 miles an hour. And you have no option until it slows down. Yeah, no place to go. And the train could be going 50 miles an hour for hours. And so you get really bad situations where people get on a train in a kind of like, ha ha ha, let's get on this train. And then they're on a nightmare ride. And a lot of them can't hold on, fall off and get, I mean, people still get killed by trains all the time. I mean, plus there's nowhere to charge your phone. You can't charge your phone. There's nowhere to, you know, I mean, if you need to pee, you can just pee. Pee off the side. Yeah. But if you need to get some. That's kind of, you're kind of, um, you're assuming a, a masculine hobo would be a little easier. Not necessarily. If you're a girl hobo, I'm, you're probably prepared to drop trow and pee off the side just as well. There's not a lot of decorum. When you find yourself at 50 miles an hour hanging onto a ladder, you're going to pee in your boots if, if that's what you're driven to. That's what keeps you on the ladder. Yeah. The first time I ever got on a, on a multi-day train, I was in the yard. I got pulled off of a train. This is in Portland. got pulled off of a train by a bull who said, you can't ride trains in my yard. And so I, you know, discouragedly 
walking along through the yard, dragging my bindle behind me in the dirt. You must have had a backpack. What did you have? I had literally had a bag that my dad got me at the Smithsonian Institution Air and Space Museum <laughs> in ni- when it opened in 1970. I think this is how people figured out that you were not prepared for the rigors of the rails. <laughs> the fact that you have an Air and Space Museum commemorative backpack. Yeah, I was do you not. Have all your, uh, do you have all your uh, collection of Lincoln pennies in there? Yeah, I, I lost that bag actually on the rails. But I'm walking through the yard this middle of the night, two in the morning, and I meet a like a brakeman coming the other way in the dark with a, you know, he's got his lantern and he said, what are you doing, kid? You hopping trains? This is 20 minutes after I got kicked off of the train by a, by a bull who's somewhere in the yard still. You're still in the, are you still in the yard? I'm or still you, in the yard yeah. in Portland. And I'm like, yeah, I was trying to get on a train. And he's like, where are you trying to go? And I said, Chicago. I'd never been to Chicago in my life, but I was like, Chicago, I'm going to Chicago. I'm going to learn the blues and I'm going to get out of this little bullshit town. And he said, oh, you're trying to go to Chicago. Huh? Well, come with me. And he took me into the yard office where all the guys were, the switching guys and the engineers and the brakemen and whatnot. He was like, this kid's trying to go to Chicago. And they all had a good laugh. <laughs> And then the the main guy, and I can still picture him, he had like, he looked like the lead singer of Sparks. He had like a little black mustache and slick black, black hair. And he said, do you have a map? And I said, no. He said, do you have a canteen or any water? No. Do you have any food? No. Do you have a light, a flashlight? No. I didn't have anything. I had my Air and Space Museum backpack and two and it, changes and of underwear. And it didn't even have a box of Triscuits and a tab, tab cola. I hadn't even bought a Snickers bar. I just was just a, I was just a dumb kid. I didn't know. It. I was like, well, the thing is, I didn't know how big America was. So I was like, Chicago. It's just like you get on a train and you go to Chicago. It's just right over there. And the guy said, "Oh man, you know." And he gave me some. He gave me a big jug of water. He gave me some cake. They were having a birthday party for somebody. They, so, there's some still cake in the break room. Cake like wrapped up in napkins. He gave me a lantern that I still have and uh, put me and told me what train to get on. And they all walked me out and <laughs> put me on the train. They want a new generation of hobos. They miss it. They thought it was hilarious. And again, it's like the, it's the blonde mustache scenario where I just had no idea that not every hobo is getting this deluxe treatment from the locals. So rule number two, have an embarrassing Larry Bird mustache yeah. and you'll get what you need. Well, and then I got on that train and immediately ate all the cake and drank all the water <laughs> in like the first 40 minutes and went to sleep and then woke up the next morning and was like, I must be in Chicago. And I was in Spokane. <laughs> I had three more days on that train. I don't think we're ever going to make a hobo out of you. No, I, I, I had to put that life behind me. It's incompatible with podcasting. Is that the the main problem? Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. I can't do the show today. I'm in a boxcar. Sorry. I'm trying to remote record, but uh, (laughs) I'm in the jungle somewhere. I I can't charge my phone on this um, flaming barrel that we're all sitting around. But it's a a little sad to me that um, that romantic life is gone and you know, migrant labor now moves about in a lot of different ways. And I think there is some small component of migrant labor that still moves short distances by jumping trains, but, but it's, it's mostly pickups and whatnot. yeah, the, the, the glory days of travel by rail are in our past. And maybe the hobo sense the end of the trains are coming, you know, like if we're evolving as a species away from trains, you know, the hobos need to find a new host. Well, and like our episode last about the French Foreign Legion, there is just a lot less sense that you can walk out into the world and grab a a hold of the wings of a star or whatever it was that people did. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Broadway musicals, so I don't know the lexicon, (laughs) Uh, but just, you know, step into, onto a train or onto a boat and go to a land undiscovered where no one could find you again. You know, my grandfather, my mother's father, during the Depression. And that's a thing that, that we didn't cover yet, which is that during the American Depression in the 1930s, the hobo culture really exploded because there were all these people out of work and there was nothing keeping them where they were and they could all just go to California. Essentially, every American became a hobo. Work. Vice President John Nance Garner, a hobo for three years of his term. 
Can't be true. No, it's not true. My grandfather, though, did jump on a train in, in Ohio and head to California uh, during sort of Cannery Row era to try and not make his fortune, just to try and find work. Uh, Get two coins to rub together. So it became a much more mainstream thing. And then in the 1950s, there was a nostalgic... Among the folk musicians. Sure, the, imagine Bob Dylan discovering Woody Guthrie. Yeah, Woody Guthrie and Jack Kerouac. I mean, all the all that generation of Americans romanticized the hobo culture of the 30s. And then in the 70s, there was a group of hobo, you know, again, hipster writer types that romanticized the hobos of the 50s. And I think me in the mid-80s, I wasn't as versed in all of that, but I had a sense of kind of the way Snoopy wore a foreign legion hat. I had a sense of what a hobo looked like and felt like and the wisdom of the road. But it's a shadow of a shadow of a shadow. Yeah. And I, wa- and I, I wanted to have that connection. I didn't even know my grandfather had done it at the time, but I just wanted that connection to an America that didn't even then didn't exist. And I had no way of anticipating how much that America would be gone in my own lifetime. It was the rise of the automobile, right? Like people wanting to discover America, Simon and Garfunkel style, could get on a bus or a car. Right, a Volkswagen um, bus. And you no longer needed, you know, there was no longer just one transportation backbone of America. Well, and you hit on it too, which is that all you have to do is jump on one train to realize how freaking scary and dangerous it is. Now, when I go down to a rail yard and and a train pulls in and I kind of stand there and watch it locomotive and a freight train kind of just lumber by, it's horrifying. I cannot remember the emotional world I was living in where I felt excited and like, and at home on them, Hmm. you know, to just hoist myself up onto one of those and it will take me where it's going. That's right. the other thing. You think don't know where the, it's going. Think about the loss of control, right? <laughs> You're just going. I mean, they, early, don't, they don't have signs on the front. La- they do in the in the sense that the engine number is connected to an itinerary. So if you're... Would you know? Would, would the hobos know? You can. And what as I got more sophisticated riding trains, I learned that you can just call the freight yard. You have to make up a story. You can't <laughs> call the yard and say like, I'm a hobo. My name is Jim, not a hobo. <laughs> <laughs> but I would call and say, hi, I'm doing a research project for the University of Chicago <laughs> on freight travel. Can you tell me the engine number? And I'm sure they saw through the ruse uh, because I, I think hobos do it a lot. Uh, this was when you put a dime in a phone and look up the the yard office in the phone book <laughs> that was there connected to the phone booth. Things were so complicated. <laughs> and uh I often got engine numbers. People would say like, oh yeah, it's 9742. It leaves at 1145 PM. And I'd go out, stand in the yard, wait for the train to come. And there I'd check the number against the number I had written down on a matchbook. Turn on your hand. (laughs) And uh, so, but early on when I first started jumping trains, I just got on whatever train seemed to be pointed in the direction I was going. And often that train would would hit a switch and all of a sudden turn south. And I'm like, no, I was headed east. And the train's like, no, we're going south. So it was a, it is, it's a surrendering of control. There just aren't that many opportunities in life now. I don't even think for young people to be that unmonitored to have, I mean, imagine, I mean, imagine. I can't be too nostalgic about this. Yeah. Since you've described it as being kind of dangerous and horrifying. It's really. Like I, I you know, I can be a, I can be a, a sad dad about a lot of things, but not the fact that my kids will never know the joy of hopping a boxcar. Well, think about what my parents were going through, right? That you're just. Did they know? No, but you know, they only heard from me once a month. And again, it was Pop like. up in a different uh, yeah, state. Yeah, I'm sitting feeding coins into a phone booth like, hey, mom. You know, or like, will you accept a collect call from John Roderick? Hey, I'm in Chicago. It's $3 a minute. Yeah. So that just doesn't exist in the same way anymore, I don't think. Except, I mean, it's much, much rare. It didn't exist that much in 1986. Who am I kidding? <laughs> right. But, you were, I know you were there for the golden age. <laughs> but but it was more of, more of a possibility. You were sitting in a boxcar watching Max Headroom on one of those little portable right. TVs that they had back then? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm just fine, frankly, with my kids having a hobby where they can, like, 0% chance they will be cut in half. And that concludes Freight Hopping, 
Entry 500.AM0812, Certificate Number 14946, in the Omnibus. Futurelings, we hope that social media in your age has become just as passe as riding the rails. We hope that it's only frequented by a few weird old men that you don't want to get too close to. Um, Hopefully your white privilege will protect you as much as mine did me. Carry your blonde mustache with you like a talisman. Futurelings may just be blonde mustaches. They're wispy mustaches just floating around over the swamps like swamp gas. Although probably they will be coffee or mocha colored mustaches. That's true. Yeah, because all, all... The mutation that is blonde cannot survive no. the coming ultraviolet apocalypse. All futurelings will be the color of coffee with cream. Melanoma will have taken care of all of the blondes by then, I can only hope. But in our day, um, social media was just starting to become that creepy. Ugh. So, of course, we spent eight hours a day on it. <laughs> why, why would you not? Uh, I was at Ken Jennings on Twitter. John is at John Roderick on both Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow the uh, high ideals of this project at Omnibus Project on any social media network you can think of. Uh, an audience of interested aficionados and academics could contact us via electronic mail in our period at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Uh, if you have access to some kind of transtemporal uh, email server, feel free to hop aboard. If you have transtemporal social media access, the Futurelings Facebook group was a lively crowd. Again, academics, artists, frisbee disc players, frisbee, frisbee golf players, right. uh, uh, bohemians of all sorts. I learn a lot. Uh, someone pointed out a better way to convert. Uh, Fahrenheit to Celsius. Oh, interesting. I, I had a, or Celsius to Fahrenheit. I had an awful way of, uh, what was I doing? Multiplying by nine, dividing by five, and adding 32. And they pointed out that you don't have to multiply by nine and divide by five. You can just... Uh, multiply by 4.5? Multiply by 10 oh. and get rid of 20%. Oh, there it is. That's easy. I think that's what I Multiply was. by 10 and give away 20%. Sure. Is that right? I don't know. I'm, I'm really not interested in doing the math right now. But I learned something interesting that I then promptly forgot. Yes. Is the point. And this happens to me um, several times a week on the Future Links Facebook group. Please, please check it out. If you have for any reason want to send us any kind of physical uh, artifact, any kind of uh, uh, hobo signs of your own devising, you can send them to Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, when there were still trains and it wasn't just automated electric Uber trucks delivering all your groceries, your diapers, your contact lenses, all directly to your door through a, pneumatic tubes. A drone would just drop a container full of everything you needed for the week just right on top of you. And you would like hold up a sign like Wile e. Coyote saying, Mother. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're talking about the, uh, the, the decline of the golden era of railroading to a listenership who thinks of railroads themselves as, as anachronistic as wooden sailing ships. Maybe more so if they're... Or square-wheeled carts. I don't know if there's anything old-fashioned enough. Camels. Camels. It's like imagining a camel. Uh, we have no idea how long our bastardized, half-fun civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, or at least not while we're still around, because Ken and I are both blonde, and we do not want to be ground into Soylent Green. We both have blonde children that we would also like to survive. Yes. So, but, but I'm not wedded to hypothetical grandchildren. Like, if the world ends in 40 years? If, there, if, if the future is anything like we imagine, none of our blonde children will marry blonde people. So our grandchildren will be, our great-great-grandchildren will be just as mocha-colored as everyone What else. if our children uh, intermarry? You have a daughter, oh. I have kids. They could produce blonde, blonde 
It's wispy, true. Wispy, mustached children it's, down through the millennia. It's true. What if all of the futurelings are descendants <laughs> of both of us? <laughs> Wait a minute. That's why they're listening to the program. <laughs> it's a it's a little genealogy experiment yeah, for them. We are the wild stallions. Although I guess Dylan's quite a bit older than Marlo. But so. that's, I mean, that doesn't matter. Does, Isn't your mother, are your mother you? and father different ages? Yeah, it's two years. Yeah, my dad was 14 years older than my mom. Your dad is probably... 40 years older than my mom. Yeah, that's right. So Dylan is only, what? He's not even 10 years older than Marlo. And of course, now when they're 16 and 6, society frowns on that. Is <laughs> Dylan 16? Yes. Because Marlo's 8. I mean, they're so only right 8 now, years apart. Right now when they're 16 and 8, society frowns on that. That's not allowed. When they're 22 and 14, society still will still frown on it. Well, this is not uh, But later in, in some kind of love in the time of cholera future where they meet again at... at 46 and 38. Yeah, when he's 30 and she's 22. Eh. Still seems weird. Maybe. When he's 40 and she's 32, that definitely feels like normal. Yes. Well, I don't know what the cutoff is, but we just passed it. Yeah. 40 and 32. Dylan, if you're listening, you're not allowed to date Marlo until you are 38. For 24 years, as soon as one of Kanye and Kim's children is president, you can start dating Marlo. (laughs) Um, if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry where we embarrass our children in the omnibus. (laughs) 